This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chekris, London, UK. The Triumphs of Eugene Valmont by Robert Barr. Chapter 4 Lord Chiselrigg's Missing Fortune. The name of the late Lord Chiselrigg never comes to my mind without instantly suggesting that of Mr. T. A. Edison. I never saw the late Lord Chiselrigg, and I have met Mr. Edison only twice in my life. Yet the two men are linked in my memory, and it was a remark the latter once made that in great measure enabled me to solve the mystery which the former had wrapped round his actions. There is no memorandum at hand to tell me the year in which those two meetings with Edison took place. I received a note from the Italian ambassador in Paris, requesting me to wait upon him at the embassy. I learned that on the next day a deputation was to set out from the embassy to one of the chief hotels, there to make a call in state upon the great American inventor, and formally present to him various insignia accompanying certain honours which the King of Italy had conferred upon him. As many Italian nobles of high rank had been invited, and as these dignitaries would not only be robed in the costumes pertaining to their orders, but in many cases would wear jewels of almost inestimable value, my presence was desired in the belief that I might perhaps be able to ward off any attempt on the part of the deft-handed gentry, who might possibly make an effort to gain these treasures. And, I may add, with perhaps some little self-gratification, no contretemps occurred. Mr. Edison, of course, had long before received notification of the hour at which the deputation would wait upon him, but when we entered the large parlour assigned to the inventor, it was evident to me at a glance that the celebrated man had forgotten all about the function. He stood by a bare table, from which the cloth had been jerked and flung into a corner, and upon that table were placed several bits of black and greasy machinery, cog-wheels, pulleys, bolts, etc., these seemingly belonged to a French workman who stood on the other side of the table with one of the parts in his grimy hand. Edison's own hands were not too clean, for he had palpably been examining the material and conversing with the workman, who wore the ordinary long blouse of an iron craftsman in a small way. I judged him to be a man with a little shop of his own in some back street, who did odd jobs of engineering, assisted perhaps by a skilled helper or two, and a few apprentices. Edison looked sternly toward the door as the solemn procession filed in, and there was a trace of annoyance on his face at the interruption, mixed with a shade of perplexity as to what this gorgeous display all meant. The Italian is as ceremonious as the Spaniard where a function is concerned, and the official who held the ornate box which contained the jewellery resting on a velvet cushion stepped slowly forward and came to a stand in front of the bewildered American. Then the ambassador, in sonorous voice, spoke some gracious words regarding the friendship existing between the United States and Italy, expressed a wish that their rivalry should ever take the form of benefits conferred upon the human race, and instanced the honoured recipient as the most notable example the world has yet produced, of a man bestowing blessings upon all nations in the arts of peace. The eloquent ambassador concluded by saying that, 
at the command of his royal master, it was both his duty and his pleasure to present, and so forth, and so forth. Mr. Edison, visibly ill at ease, nevertheless made a suitable reply in the fewest possible words, and the etalage being thus at an end, the noblemen, headed by their ambassador, slowly retired, myself forming the tail of the procession. Inwardly I deeply sympathised with the French workman, who thus unexpectedly found himself confronted by so much magnificence. He cast one wild look about him, but saw that his retreat was cut off unless he displaced some of these gorgeous grandees. He tried then to shrink into himself, and finally stood helpless like one paralysed. In spite of republican institutions, there is deep down in every Frenchman's heart a respect and awe for official pageants, sumptuously staged and costumed as this one was. But he likes to view it from afar, and supported by his fellows, not thrust incongruously into the midst of things, as was the case with this panic-stricken engineer. As I passed out, I cast a glance over my shoulder at the humble artisan, content with the profit of a few francs a day, and at the millionaire inventor opposite him, Edison's face, which, during the address, had been cold and impassive, reminding me vividly of a bust of Napoleon, was all now aglow with enthusiasm, as he turned to his humble visitor. He cried joyfully to the workman, "'A minute's demonstration is worth an hour's explanation. I'll call round to-morrow at your shop about ten o'clock, and show you how to make the thing work.' I lingered in the hall until the Frenchman came out, then, introducing myself to him, asked the privilege of visiting his shop next day at ten. This was accorded with that courtesy which you will always find among the industrial classes of France, and next day I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Edison. During our conversation I complimented him on his invention of the incandescent electric light, and this was the reply that has ever remained in my memory. It was not an invention, but a discovery. We knew what we wanted, a carbonized tissue which would withstand the electric current in a vacuum for, say, a thousand hours. If no such tissue existed, then the incandescent light as we know it was not possible. My assistants started out to find this tissue, and we simply carbonized everything we could lay our hands on, and ran the current through it in a vacuum. At last we struck the right thing, as we were bound to do if we kept on long enough, and if the thing existed. Patience and hard work will overcome any obstacle. This belief has been of great assistance to me in my profession. I know the idea is prevalent that a detective arrives at his solutions in a dramatic way, through following clues invisible to the ordinary man. This doubtless frequently happens, but as a general thing, the patience and hard work which Mr. Edison commends is a much safer guide. Very often the following of excellent clues has led me to disaster, as was the case with my unfortunate attempt to solve the mystery of the five hundred diamonds. As I was saying, I never think of the late Lord Chiselrigg without remembering Mr. Edison at the same time, and yet the two were very dissimilar. I suppose Lord Chiselrigg was the most useless man that ever lived, while Edison is the opposite. One day my servant brought in to me a card on which was engraved, Lord Chiselrigg. Show his lordship in, I said. 
and there appeared a young man of perhaps twenty-four or twenty-five, well-dressed and of most charming manners, who nevertheless began his interview by asking a question such as had never before been addressed to me, and which, if put to a solicitor or other professional man, would have been answered with some indignation. Indeed, I believe it is a written or unwritten law of the legal profession that the acceptance of such a proposal as Lord Chiselrigg made to me would, if proved, result in the disgrace and ruin of the lawyer. Monsieur Valmont, began Lord Chiselrigg, do you ever take up cases on speculation? On speculation, sir? I do not think I understand you. His lordship blushed like a girl, and stammered slightly as he attempted an explanation. What I mean is, do you accept a case on a contingent fee? Uh, that is to say, monsieur, uh, well, not to put too fine a point upon it, no results, no pay. I replied, somewhat severely, such an offer has never been made to me, and I may say at once that I should be compelled to decline it were I favoured with the opportunity. In the cases submitted to me, I devote my time and attention to their solution. I try to deserve success, but I cannot command it, and as in the interim I must live, I am reluctantly compelled to make a charge for my time at least. I believe the doctor sends in his bill, though the patient dies. The young man laughed uneasily, and seemed almost too embarrassed to proceed, but finally he said, "'Your illustration strikes home with greater accuracy than probably you imagined when you uttered it. I have just paid my last penny to the physician who attended my late uncle, Lord Chiselrigg, who died six months ago. I am fully aware that the suggestion I made may seem like a reflection upon your skill, or rather as implying a doubt regarding it, but I should be grieved, monsieur, if you fell into such an error. I could have come here and commissioned you to undertake some elucidation of the strange situation in which I find myself, and I make no doubt you would have accepted the task if your numerous engagements had permitted. Then, if you failed, I should have been unable to pay you, for I am practically bankrupt. My whole desire, therefore, was to make an honest beginning, and to let you know exactly how I stand. If you succeed, I shall be a rich man. If you do not succeed, I shall be what I am now, penniless. Have I made it plain now why I began with a question which you had every right to resent? Perfectly plain, my lord, and your candour does you credit. I was very much taken with the unassuming manners of the young man, and his evident desire to accept no service under false pretences. When I had finished my sentence, the pauper nobleman rose to his feet and bowed. I am very much your debtor, monsieur, for your courtesy in receiving me, and can only beg pardon for occupying your time on a futile quest. I wish you good morning, monsieur. Uh, one moment, my lord, I rejoined, waving him to his chair again. Although I am unprepared to accept a commission on the terms you suggest, I may nevertheless be able to offer a hint or two that will prove of service to you. I think I remember the announcement of Lord Chiselrigg's death. He was somewhat eccentric, was he not? Eccentric, said the young man with a slight laugh, seating himself again. Well, rather. 
I vaguely remember that he was accredited with the possession of something like twenty thousand acres of land. Twenty-seven thousand, as a matter of fact, replied my visitor. Have you fallen heir to the lands as well as to the title? Oh, yes, the estate was entailed. The old gentleman could not divert it from me if he would, and I rather suspect that fact must have been the cause of some worry to him. But surely, my lord, a man who owns, as one might say, a principality in this wealthy realm of England cannot be penniless. Again the young man laughed. Well, no, he replied, thrusting his hand in his pocket and bringing to light a few brown coppers and a white silver piece. I possess enough money to buy some food to-night, but not enough to dine at the Hotel Cecil. You see, it is like this. I belong to a somewhat ancient family, various members of whom went the pace and mortgaged their acres up to the hilt. I could not raise a further penny on my estates were I to try my hardest, because at the time the money was lent, land was much more valuable than it is to-day. Agricultural depression, and all that sort of thing, have, if I may put it so, left me a good many thousands worse off than if I had no land at all. Besides this, during my late uncle's life, Parliament, on his behalf, intervened once or twice, allowing him in the first place to cut valuable timber, and in the second place to sell the pictures of Chiselrigg Chase at Christie's for figures which make one's mouth water. And what became of the money? I asked, whereupon once more this genial nobleman laughed. That is exactly what I came up in the lift to learn if Monsieur Valmont could discover. My lord, you interest me, I said, quite truly, with an uneasy apprehension that I should take up his case after all, for I like the young man already. His lack of pretense appealed to me, and that sympathy which is so universal among my countrymen enveloped him, as I may say, quite independent of my own will. My uncle, went on Lord Chiselrigg, was somewhat of an anomaly in our family. He must have been a reversal to a very, very ancient type, a type of which we have no record. He was as miserly as his forefathers were prodigal. When he came into the title and estate some twenty years ago, he dismissed the whole retinue of servants, and, indeed, was defendant in several cases at law where retainers of our family brought suit against him for wrongful dismissal, or dismissal without a penny compensation in lieu of notice. I am pleased to say he lost all his cases, and when he pleaded poverty, got permission to sell a certain number of heirlooms, enabling him to make compensation, and giving him something on which to live. These heirlooms, at auction, sold so unexpectedly well, that my uncle acquired a taste, as it were, of what might be done. He could always prove that the rents went to the mortgagees, and that he had nothing on which to exist, so on several occasions he obtained permission from the courts to cut timber and sell pictures, until he denuded the estate, and made an empty barn of the old manor-house. He lived like any labourer, occupying himself sometimes as a carpenter, sometimes as a blacksmith. Indeed, he made a blacksmith's shop of the library, one of the most noble rooms in Britain, containing thousands of valuable books which again and again he applied for permission to sell, but this privilege was never granted to him. I find on coming into the property that my uncle quite persistently evaded the law, and depleted this superb collection book by book, 
surreptitiously through dealers in London. This, of course, would have got him into deep trouble if it had been discovered before his death, but now the valuable volumes are gone, and there is no redress. Many of them are doubtless in America, or in museums and collections of Europe. You wish me to trace them, perhaps? I interpolated. Oh, no, they are past praying for. The old man made tens of thousands by the sale of the timber, and other thousands by disposing of the pictures. The house is denuded of its fine old furniture, which was immensely valuable. And then the books, as I have said, must have brought in the revenue of a prince, if he got anything like their value, and you may be sure he was shrewd enough to know their worth. Since the last refusal of the courts to allow him further relief, as he termed it, which was some seven years ago, he had quite evidently been disposing of books and furniture by a private sale, in defiance of the law. At that time I was under age, but my guardians opposed his application to the courts, and demanded an account of the monies already in his hands. The judges upheld the opposition of my guardians, and refused to allow a further spoliation of the estate, but they did not grant the accounting my guardians asked, because the proceeds of the former sales were entirely at the disposal of my uncle, and were sanctioned by the law to permit him to live as befitted his station. If he lived meagrely instead of lavishly, as my guardians contended, that, the judges said, was his affair, and there the matter ended. My uncle took a violent dislike to me, on account of this opposition to his last application, although, of course, I had nothing whatever to do with the matter. He lived like a hermit, mostly in the library, and was waited upon by an old man and his wife, and these three were the only inhabitants of a mansion that could comfortably house a hundred. He visited nobody, and would allow no one to approach Chiselrigg Chase. In order that all who had the misfortune to have dealing with him should continue to endure trouble after his death, he left what might be called a will, but which rather may be termed a letter to me. Here is a copy of it. My dear Tom, you will find your fortune between a couple of sheets of paper in the library. Your affectionate uncle, Reginald Moran, Earl of Chiselrigg. I should doubt if that were a legal will, said I. It doesn't need to be, replied the young man with a smile. I am next of kin, and heir to everything he possessed, although, of course, he might have given his money elsewhere, if he had chosen to do so. Why he did not bequeath it to some institution, I do not know. He knew no man personally except his own servants, whom he misused and starved. But, as he told them, he misused and starved himself, so they had no cause to grumble. He said he was treating them like one of the family. I suppose he thought it would cause me more worry and anxiety if he concealed the money and put me on the wrong scent, which I am convinced he has done than to leave it openly to any person or charity. I need not ask if you have searched the library. Searched it? Why, there never was such a search since the world began. Possibly you put the task into incompetent hands. You are hinting, Monsieur Valmont, that I engaged others until my money was gone, and then came to you with a speculative proposal. Let me assure you such is not the case. Incompetent hands, I grant you, but the hands were my own. For the past six months I have lived practically as my uncle lived. I have rummaged that library from floor to ceiling. 
It was left in a frightful state, littered with old newspapers, accounts, and what not. Then, of course, there were the books remaining in the library, still a formidable collection. Was your uncle a religious man? I could not say. I surmise not. You see, I was unacquainted with him, and never saw him until after his death. I fancy he was not religious, otherwise he could not have acted as he did. Still, he proved himself a man of such twisted mentality that anything is possible. I knew a case once where an heir who expected a large sum of money was bequeathed a family Bible, which he threw into the fire, learning afterwards to his dismay that it contained many thousands of pounds in Bank of England notes, the object of the deviser being to induce the legatee to read the good book, or suffer through the neglect of it. "'I have searched the scriptures,' said the youthful earl with a laugh, "'but the benefit has been moral rather than material. "'Is there any chance that your uncle has deposited his wealth in a bank, "'and has written a cheque for the amount, leaving it between two leaves of a book?' "'Anything is possible, monsieur, but I think that highly improbable. "'I have gone through every tome, page by page, "'and I suspect very few of the volumes have been opened for the last twenty years.' "'How much money do you estimate he accumulated?' "'He must have cleared more than a hundred thousand pounds. "'But speaking of banking it, "'I would like to say that my uncle evinced a deep distrust of banks "'and never drew a cheque in his life, so far as I am aware. "'All accounts were paid in gold by this old steward, "'who first brought the receipted bill in to my uncle, "'and then received the exact amount after having left the room "'and waited until he was rung for.' "'so that he might not learn the repository from which my uncle drew his store. "'I believe if the money is ever found, it will be in gold, "'and I am very sure that this will was written, if, if we may call it a will, "'to put us on the wrong scent. "'Have you had the library cleared out?' "'Oh, no, it is practically as my uncle left it. "'I realise that if I were to call in help, "'it would be well that the newcomer found it undisturbed. "'You were quite right, my lord.' "'You say you examined all the papers?' "'Yes. So far as that is concerned, the room has been very fairly gone over. "'But nothing that was in it the day my uncle died has been removed, not even his anvil.' "'His anvil?' "'Yes, I told you he made a blacksmith's shop, as well as bedroom, of the library. "'It is a huge room, with a great fireplace at one end, which formed an excellent forge.' He and the steward built the forge in the eastern fireplace of brick and clay with their own hands, and erected there a second-hand blacksmith's bellows. What work did he do at his forge? Oh, anything that was required about the place. He seems to have been a very expert iron-worker. He would never buy a new implement for the garden or the house, so long as he could get one second-hand, and he never bought anything second-hand, while at his forge he might repair what was already in use. He kept an old cob, on which he used to ride through the park, and he always put the shoes on this cob himself, the steward informs me, so he must have understood the use of blacksmith's tools. He made a carpenter's shop of the chief drawing-room, and erected a bench there. I think a very useful mechanic was spoiled when my uncle became an earl. You have been living at the chase since your uncle died? "'If you call it living, yes. "'The old steward and his wife have been looking after me "'as they looked after my uncle, "'and seeing me day after day, coatless and covered with dust, "'I imagine they think me a second edition of the old man. 
Does the steward know the money is missing? No, no one knows it but myself. This will was left on the anvil in an envelope addressed to me. Your statement is exceedingly clear, Lord Chiselrigg, but I confess I don't see much daylight through it. Is there a pleasant country around Chiselrigg Chase? Very, especially at this season of the year. In autumn and winter the house is a little draughty. It needs several thousand pounds to put it in repair. Drafts do not matter in the summer. I have been long enough in England not to share the fear of my countrymen for a courant d'air. Is there a spare bed in the manor house, or shall I take down a cot with me, or, let us say, a hammock? Really, stammered the earl, blushing again, you must not think I detailed all these circumstances in order to influence you to take up what may be a hopeless case. I, of course, am deeply interested, and therefore somewhat prone to be carried away when I begin a recital of my uncle's eccentricities. If I receive your permission, I will call on you again in a month or two. To tell you the truth, I borrowed a little money from the old steward, and visited London to see my legal advisers, hoping that in the circumstances I may get permission to sell something that will keep me from starvation. When I spoke of the house being denuded, I meant relatively, of course. There are still a good many antiquities, which would doubtless bring me in a comfortable sum of money. I have been borne up by the belief that I should find my uncle's gold. Lately I have been beset by a suspicion that the old gentleman thought the library the only valuable asset left, and for this reason wrote his note, thinking I should be afraid to sell anything from that room. The old rascal must have made a pot of money out of those shelves. The catalogue shows that there was a copy of the first book printed in England by Caxton, and several priceless Shakespeare's, as well as many other volumes that a collector would give a small fortune for. All these are gone. I think when I show this to be the case, the authorities cannot refuse me the right to sell something, and if I get this permission I shall at once call upon you. Nonsense, Lord Chiselrigg. Put your application in motion, if you like, and meanwhile I beg of you to look upon me as a more substantial banker than your old steward. Let us enjoy a good dinner together at the Cecil tonight, if you will do me the honour to be my guest. Tomorrow we can leave for Chiselrigg Chase. How far is it? About three hours, replied the young man, becoming as red as a new Queen Anne villa. Really, Monsieur Valmont, you overwhelm me with your kindness, but nevertheless I accept your generous offer. Then that's settled. What's the name of the old steward? Higgins. You are certain he has no knowledge of the hiding-place of this treasure? Oh, quite sure. My uncle was not a man to make a confidant of any one, least of all an old babbler like Higgins. Well, I should like to be introduced to Higgins as a benighted foreigner. That will make him despise me and treat me like a child. Oh, I say, protested the earl. I should have thought you'd lived long enough in England to have got out of the notion that we do not appreciate the foreigner. Indeed, we are the only nation in the world that extends a cordial welcome to him, rich or poor. Uh, certainement, my lord. I should be deeply disappointed did you not take me at my proper valuation. But I cherish no delusions regarding the contempt with which Higgins will regard me. He will look upon me as a sort of simpleton, to whom the Lord had been unkind by not making England my native land. Now Higgins must be led to believe that I am in his own class, that is, a servant of yours. Higgins and I will gossip over the fire together, 
should these spring evenings prove chilly, and before two or three weeks are past I shall have learned a great deal about your uncle that you never dreamed of. Higgins will talk more freely with a fellow-servant than with his master, however much he may respect that master, and then, as I am a foreigner, he will babble down to my comprehension, and I shall get details that he never would think of giving to a fellow-countryman. The young earl's modesty, in such description of his home as he had given me, left me totally unprepared for the grandeur of the mansion, one corner of which he inhabited. It is such a place as you read of in romances of the Middle Ages, not a pinnacled or turreted French chateau of that period, but a beautiful and substantial stone manor-house of a ruddy colour, whose warm hue seemed to add a softness to the severity of its architecture. It is built round an outer and an inner courtyard, and could house a thousand, rather than the hundred with which its owner had accredited it. There are many stone-mullioned windows, and one at the end of the library might well have graced a cathedral. This superb residence occupies the centre of a heavily timbered park, and from the lodge at the gates we drove at least a mile and a half under the grandest avenue of old oaks I have ever seen. It seemed incredible that the owner of all this should actually lack the ready money to pay his fare to town. Old Higgins met us at the station with a somewhat rickety cart, to which was attached the ancient cob that the late earl used to shoe. We entered a noble hall, which probably looked the larger because of the entire absence of any kind of furniture, unless two complete suits of venerable armour which stood on either hand might be considered as furnishing, I laughed aloud when the door was shut, and the sound echoed like the merriment of ghosts from the dim-timbered roof above me. "'What are you laughing at?' asked the Earl. "'I am laughing to see you put your modern tall hat on that medieval helmet.' "'Oh, that's it. Well, put yours on the other. I mean no disrespect to the ancestor who wore this suit, but we are short of the harmless, necessary hat-rack, so I put my topper on the antique helmet.' and thrust the umbrella, if I have one, in behind here, and down one of his legs. Since I came in possession, a very crafty-looking dealer from London visited me, and attempted to sound me regarding the sale of these suits of armour. I gathered he would give enough money to keep me in new suits, London-made, for the rest of my life, but when I endeavoured to find out if he had had commercial dealings with my prophetic uncle, he became frightened and bolted. I imagined that if I had possessed presence of mind enough to have lured him into one of our most uncomfortable dungeons, I might have learned where some of the family treasures went to. Come up these stairs, Monsieur Valmont, and I will show you your room. We had lunched on the train coming down, so after a wash in my own room, I proceeded at once to inspect the library. It proved indeed a most noble apartment— and it had been scandalously used by the old reprobate, its late tenant. There were two huge fireplaces, one in the middle of the north wall, and the other at the eastern end. In the latter had been erected a rude brick forge, and beside the forge hung a great black bellows, smoky with usage. On a wooden block lay the anvil, and around it rested and rusted several hammers, large and small. At the western end was a glorious window filled with ancient stained glass, which, as I have said, might have adorned a cathedral. 
extensive as the collection of books was, the great size of this chamber made it necessary that only the outside wall should be covered with bookcases, and even these were divided by tall windows. The opposite wall was blank, with the exception of a picture here and there, and these pictures offered a further insult to the room, for they were cheap prints, mostly coloured lithographs that had appeared in Christmas numbers of London weekly journals, encased in poverty-stricken frames, hanging from nails ruthlessly driven in above them. The floor was covered with a litter of papers, in some places knee-deep, and in the corner farthest from the forge still stood the bed on which the ancient miser had died. "'Looks like a stable, doesn't it?' commented the Earl, when I had finished my inspection. "'I am sure the old boy simply filled it up with this rubbish to give me the trouble of examining it. "'Higgins tells me that up to within a month before he died the room was reasonably clear of all this muck. "'Of course it had to be, or the place would have caught fire from the sparks of the forge. "'The old man made Higgins gather all the papers he could find anywhere about the place, "'ancient accounts, newspapers and what not, even to the brown wrapping paper you see in which parcels came, and commanded him to strew the floor with this litter, because, as he complained, Higgins's boots on the boards made too much noise, and Higgins, who is not in the least of an inquiring mind, accepted this explanation as entirely meeting the case. Higgins proved to be a garrulous old fellow who needed no urging to talk about the late Earl. Indeed, it was almost impossible to deflect his conversation into any other channel. Twenty years' intimacy with the eccentric nobleman had largely obliterated that sense of deference with which an English servant usually approaches his master. An English underling's idea of nobility is the man who never by any possibility works with his hands. The fact that Lord Chiselrigg had toiled at the carpenter's bench, had mixed cement in the drawing-room, had caused the anvil to ring out till midnight, aroused no admiration in Higgins's mind. In addition to this, the ancient nobleman had been penuriously strict in his examination of accounts, exacting the uttermost farthing, so the humble servitor regarded his memory with supreme contempt. I realised before the drive was finished from the station to Chiselrigg Chase that there was little use of introducing me to Higgins as a foreigner and a fellow-servant. I found myself completely unable to understand what the old fellow said. His dialect was as unknown to me as the Choctaw language would have been, and the young Earl was compelled to act as interpreter on the occasions when we set this garrulous talking machine going. The new Earl of Chiselrigg, with the enthusiasm of a boy, proclaimed himself my pupil and assistant, and said he would do whatever he was told. His thorough and fruitless search of the library had convinced him that the old man was merely chaffing him, as he put it, by leaving such a letter as he had written. His lordship was certain that the money had been hidden somewhere else, probably buried under one of the trees in the park. Of course this was possible, and represented the usual method by which a stupid person conceals treasure. Yet I did not think it probable. All conversations with Higgins showed the Earl to have been an extremely suspicious man, suspicious of banks, suspicious even of Bank of England notes. "'suspicious of every person on earth, not omitting Higgins himself. "'Therefore, as I told his nephew, "'the miser would never allow the fortune out of his sight and immediate reach. 
From the first, the oddity of the forge and anvil being placed in his bedroom struck me as peculiar, and I said to the young man, "'I'll stake my reputation that forge or anvil or both contain the secret.' You see, the old gentleman worked sometimes till midnight, for Higgins could hear his hammering. If he used hard coal on the forge, the fire would last through the night, and being in continual terror of thieves, as Higgins says, barricading the castle every evening before dark as if it were a fortress, he was bound to place the treasure in the most unlikely spot for a thief to get at it. Now the coal fire smouldered all night long, and if the gold was in the forge underneath the embers, it would be extremely difficult to get at. A robber rummaging in the dark would burn his fingers in more senses than one. Then, as his lordship kept no less than four loaded revolvers under his pillow, all he had to do if a thief entered his room was to allow the search to go on until the thief started at the forge, then doubtless, as he had the range with reasonable accuracy night or day, he might sit up in bed and blaze away with revolver after revolver. There were twenty-eight shots that could be fired in about double as many seconds, so you see the robber stood little chance in the face of such a fusillade. I propose that we dismantle the forge. Lord Chiselrigg was much taken by my reasoning, and one morning, early, we cut down the big bellows, tore it open, found it empty, then took brick after brick from the forge with a crowbar, for the old man had builded better than he knew with Portland cement. In fact, when we cleared away the rubbish between the bricks and the core of the furnace, we came upon one cube of cement which was as hard as granite. With the aid of Higgins and a set of rollers and levers, we managed to get this block out into the park and attempted to crush it with the sledgehammers belonging to the forge, in which we were entirely unsuccessful. The more it resisted our efforts, the more certain we became that the coins would be found within it. As this would not be treasure-trove, in the sense that the government might make a claim upon it, there was no particular necessity for secrecy. So we had up a man from the mines nearby with drills and dynamite, who speedily shattered the block into a million pieces, more or less. Alas, there was no trace in its debris of pay-dirt, as the western miner puts it. While the dynamite expert was on the spot, we induced him to shatter the anvil, as well as the block of cement, and then the workman, doubtless thinking the new earl was as insane as the old one had been, shouldered his tools and went back to his mine. The earl reverted to his former opinion that the gold was concealed in the park, while I held even more firmly to my own belief that the fortune rested in the library. "'It is obvious,' I said to him, "'that if the treasure is buried outside, someone must have dug the hole. A man so timorous and so reticent as your uncle would allow no one to do this but himself.' Higgins maintained the other evening that all picks and spades were safely locked up by himself each night in the tool-house. The mansion itself was barricaded with such exceeding care that it would have been difficult for your uncle to get outside even if he had wished to do so. Then such a man as your uncle is described to have been would continually desire ocular demonstration that his savings were intact, which would be practically impossible if the gold had found a grave in the park. I propose now that we abandon violence and dynamite, and proceed to an intellectual search of the library. Very well, replied the young earl, but, as I have already searched the library very thoroughly, your use of the word intellectual, Monsieur Valmont, is not in accord with your customary politeness. However, I am with you. 
"'Tis for you to command and me to obey. "'Pardon me, my lord,' I said. "'I use the word intellectual in contradistinction to the word dynamite. "'It had no reference to your former search. "'I merely propose that we now abandon the use of chemical reaction "'and employ the much greater force of mental activity. "'Did you notice any writing on the margins of the newspapers you examined?' "'No, I did not. "'Is it possible that there may have been some communication "'on the white border of a newspaper?' "'It is, of course, possible. "'Then will you set yourself to the task of glancing over the margin of every newspaper, "'piling them away in another room when your scrutiny of each is complete? "'Do not destroy anything, but we must clear out the library completely. "'I am interested in the accounts, and will examine them.' It was exasperatingly tedious work, but after several days my assistant reported every margin scanned without result, while I had collected each bill and memorandum, classifying them according to date. I could not get rid of a suspicion that the contrary old beast had written instructions for the finding of the treasure on the back of some account, or on the fly-leaf of a book, and as I looked at the thousands of volumes still left in the library, the prospect of such a patient and minute search appalled me. But I remembered Edison's words, to the effect that if a thing exist, search, exhaustive enough, will find it. From the mass of accounts I selected several, the rest I placed in another room, alongside the heap of the Earl's newspapers. Now, said I to my helper, "'If it please you, we will have Higgins in, "'as I wish some explanation of these accounts.' "'Perhaps I can assist you,' suggested his lordship, "'drawing up a chair opposite the table on which I had spread the statements. "'I have lived here for six months, "'and know as much about things as Higgins does. "'He is so difficult to stop when once he begins to talk. "'What is the first account you wish further light upon?' To go back thirteen years, I find that your uncle bought a second-hand safe in Sheffield. Here is the bill. I consider it necessary to find that safe. Pray forgive me, Monsieur Valmont, cried the young man, springing to his feet and laughing. So heavy an article as a safe should not slip readily from a man's memory, but it did from mine. The safe is empty, and I gave no more thought to it. Saying this, the Earl went to one of the bookcases that stood against the wall, "'pulled it round as if it were a door, books and all, "'and displayed the front of an iron safe, "'the door of which he also drew open, "'exhibiting the usual empty interior of such a receptacle. "'I came on this,' he said, "'when I took down all these volumes. "'It appears that there was once a secret door "'leading from the library into an outside room "'which has long since disappeared. "'The walls are very thick.' My uncle doubtless caused this door to be taken off its hinges, and the safe placed in the aperture, the rest of which he then bricked up. "'Quite so,' said I, endeavouring to conceal my disappointment. "'As this strong-box was bought second-hand and not made to order, I suppose there can be no secret crannies in it.' "'It looks like a common or garden safe,' reported my assistant. "'But we'll have it out, if you say so.' "'Not just now,' I replied. "'We've had enough of dynamiting to make us feel like housebreakers already.' "'I agree with you. "'What's the next item on the programme?' "'Your uncle's mania for buying things at second hand "'was broken in three instances, "'so far as I have been able to learn "'from a scrutiny of these accounts. "'About four years ago he purchased a new book 
from Denny and Company, the well-known booksellers of the Strand. Denny and Co. deal only in new books. Is there any comparatively new volume in the library? Not one. Are you sure of that? Oh, quite. I searched all the literature in the house. What is the name of the volume he bought? That I cannot decipher. The initial letter looks like M, but the rest is a mere wavy line. I see, however, that it cost twelve and sixpence, while the cost of carriage by parcel post was sixpence, which shows it weighed something under four pounds. This, with the price of the book, induces me to think that it was a scientific work, printed on heavy paper and illustrated. I know nothing of it, said the Earl. The third account is for wallpaper. Twenty-seven rolls of an expensive wallpaper, and twenty-seven rolls of a cheap paper, the latter being just half the price of the former. This wallpaper seems to have been supplied by a tradesman in the station road in the village of Chiselrig. "'There's your wallpaper,' cried the youth, waving his hand. He was going to paper the whole house, Higgins told me, but got tired after he had finished the library, which took him nearly a year to accomplish, for he worked at it very intermittently, mixing the paste in the boudoir, a pailful at a time as he needed it. It was a scandalous thing to do, for underneath the paper is the most exquisite oak panelling, very plain, but very rich in colour. I rose and examined the paper on the wall. It was dark brown, and answered the description of the expensive paper on the bill. "'What became of the cheap paper?' I asked. "'I don't know.' "'I think,' said I, "'we are on the track of the mystery.' I believe that paper covers a sliding panel or concealed door. It is very likely, replied the earl. I intended to have the paper off, but I had no money to pay a workman, and I am not so industrious as was my uncle. What is your remaining account? The last also pertains to paper, but comes from a firm in Budge Row, London, E.C. He has had, it seems, a thousand sheets of it, and it appears to have been frightfully expensive. This bill is also illegible, but I take it a thousand sheets were supplied, although, of course, it may have been a thousand quires, which would be a little more reasonable for the price charged, or a thousand reams, which would be exceedingly cheap. I don't know anything about that. Let's turn on Higgins. Higgins knew nothing of this last order of paper either. The wallpaper mystery he at once cleared up. Apparently the old earl had discovered by experiment that the heavy, expensive wallpaper would not stick to the glossy panelling, so he had purchased a cheaper paper, and had pasted that on first. Higgins said he had gone all over the panelling with a yellowish-white paper, and after that was dry, he pasted over it the more expensive rolls. But, I objected, the two papers were bought and delivered at the same time. Therefore he could not have found by experiment that the heavy paper would not stick. "'I don't think there is much in that,' commented the Earl. "'The heavy paper may have been bought first and found to be unsuitable, "'and then the coarse cheap paper bought afterwards. "'The bill merely shows that the account was sent in on that date. "'Indeed, as the village of Chiselrig is but a few miles away, "'it would have been quite possible for my uncle to have bought the heavy paper in the morning, "'tried it, and in the afternoon sent for the commoner lot. "'But in any case, the bill would not have been presented until months after the order, and the two purchasers were thus lumped together. 
I was forced to confess that this seemed reasonable. Now about the book ordered from Denny's. Did Higgins remember anything regarding it? It came four years ago. Ah, yes, Higgins did. He remembered it very well indeed. He had come in one morning with the Earl's tea, and the old man was sitting up in bed reading his volume with such interest that he was unaware of Higgins's knock, and Higgins himself, being a little hard of hearing, took for granted the command to enter. The Earl hastily thrust the book under the pillow, alongside the revolvers, and rated Higgins in a most cruel way for entering the room before getting permission to do so. He had never seen the Earl so angry before, and he laid it all to this book. It was after the book had come that the forge had been erected and the anvil bought. Higgins never saw the book again, but one morning, six months before the Earl died, Higgins, in raking out the cinders of the forge, found what he supposed was a portion of the book's cover. He believed his master had burnt the volume. Having dismissed Higgins, I said to the Earl, the first thing to be done is to enclose this bill to Denny and Company, Booksellers Strand. Tell them you have lost the volume, and ask them to send another. There is likely someone in the shop who can decipher the illegible writing. I am certain the book will give us a clue. Now I shall write to Brown and Sons, Budge Row. This is evidently a French company. In fact, the name, as connected with paper-making, runs in my mind, although I cannot at this moment place it. I shall ask them the use of this paper that they furnished to the late Earl. This was done accordingly. And now, as we thought, until the answers came, we were two men out of work. Yet the next morning I am pleased to say, and I have always rather plumed myself on the fact, I solved the mystery before replies were received from London. Of course, both the book and the answer of the paper agents, by putting two and two together, would have given us the key. After breakfast I strolled somewhat aimlessly into the library, whose floor was now strewn merely with brown wrapping paper, bits of string and all that. As I shuffled among this with my feet, as if tossing aside dead autumn leaves in a forest path, my attention was suddenly drawn to several squares of paper unwrinkled and never used for wrapping. These sheets seemed to me strangely familiar. I picked one of them up, and at once the significance of the name Brown and Sons occurred to me. They are paper-makers in France, who produce a smooth, very tough sheet, which, dear as it is, proves infinitely cheap compared with the fine vellum it deposed in a certain branch of industry. In Paris, years before, these sheets had given me the knowledge of how a gang of thieves disposed of their gold without melting it. The paper was used instead of vellum, in the rougher processes of manufacturing gold leaf. It stood the constant beating of the hammer nearly as well as the vellum, and here at once there flashed on me the secret of the old man's midnight anvil work. He was transforming his sovereigns into gold leaf, which must have been of a rude, thick kind, because to produce the gold leaf of commerce he still needed the vellum, as well as a clutch and other machinery, of which we had found no trace. "'My lord,' I called to my assistant. He was at the other end of the room. "'I wish to test a theory on the anvil of your own fresh common sense.' "'Hammer away,' replied the earl, approaching me with his usual good-natured jocular expression. 
I eliminate the safe from our investigations because it was purchased thirteen years ago. But the buying of the book, of wall covering, of this tough paper from France, all group themselves into a set of incidents occurring within the same month as the purchase of the anvil and the building of the forge. Therefore, I think they are related to one another. Here are some sheets of paper he got from Budge Row. Have you ever seen anything like it? Try to tear this sample. It's reasonably tough, admitted his lordship, fruitlessly endeavouring to rip it apart. Yes, it was made in France, and is used in gold-beating. Your uncle beat his sovereigns into gold-leaf. You will find that the book from Denny's is a volume on gold-beating. And now, as I remember that scribbled word which I could not make out, I think the title of the volume is Metallurgy. It contains, no doubt, a chapter on the manufacture of gold-leaf. I believe you, said the Earl, but I don't see that the discovery sets us any further forward. We are now looking for gold-leaf instead of sovereigns. Let's examine this wallpaper, said I. I placed my knife under a corner of it at the floor, and quite easily ripped off a large section. As Higgins had said, the brown paper was on top, and the coarse light-coloured paper underneath. But even that came away from the oak panelling as easily as though it hung there from habit, and not because of paste. "'Feel the weight of that,' I cried, handing him the sheet I had torn from the wall. "'By Jove!' said the Earl, in a voice almost of awe. I took it from him, and laid it face downwards on the wooden table, threw a little water on the back, and with a knife scraped away the porous white paper. Instantly there gleamed up at us the baleful yellow of the gold. I shrugged my shoulders and spread out my hands. The Earl of Chiselrigg laughed aloud and very heartily. "'You see how it is,' I cried. "'The old man first covered the entire wall with this whitish paper.' He heated his sovereigns at the forge, and beat them out on the anvil, then completed the process rudely between the sheets of this paper from France. Probably he pasted the gold to the wall as soon as he shut himself in for the night, and covered it over with the more expensive paper, before Higgins entered in the morning. We found afterwards, however, that he had actually fastened the thick sheets of gold to the wall with carpet tacks. His lordship netted a trifle over a hundred and twenty-three thousand pounds through my discovery, and I am pleased to pay tribute to the young man's generosity by saying that his voluntary settlement made my bank account swell stout as a city alderman. End of chapter four. Lord Chiselrigg's missing fortune.